Good morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning. I know that you were expecting Genesis 1, so I chose a text that dealt with disappointment. So, um, Matt unfortunately came down with uh, COVID this week. If you saw on social media, it's been a relatively mild case, but we're thankful for that. But you can keep praying for his quick recovery, and we hope to return to Genesis next week in the series we had planned. But it's good to be in the same God who inspired Genesis 1 is the same God who inspired Romans 5. So we're expecting that he would use his word this morning. We're just going to dive right in because Daniel just prayed for us. But it's been said that the book of Romans really centers on this concept of exchange. And you can see this this exchange that, that most writing centers on about the book of Romans from chapter four, verse 25, that is right before the passage we're gonna meditate on together today. So if you look at 425, this encapsulates the miracle of the exchange that is at the heart of the book of Romans. 425, he, meaning Jesus Christ, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the glorious exchange that Christians call the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was delivered over to pay the penalty that we deserve for our trespasses so that we, in turn, when he was raised from the grave, God would count us with all of the achievements and all of the worth of Christ and what he accomplished when he lived on earth. So we go from being crushed under the exacting weight of the justice of God in the book of Romans and it's that, that crushing sense of hopelessness is replaced by this confidence that therefore there is no condemnation, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the exchange of all exchanges. He paid the price and we get the glory. This is what makes us sing a song like a thousand hallelujahs, right? There were a thousand reasons for us to be condemned before God. And now because of this massive exchange that God has done by delivering over his son and raising him in our place, we get to sing a thousand hallelujahs. This is the heart of the gospel. But what I think has been underexplored and yet to be mined riches are all over the place in the book of Romans is how what God did in that exchange fires a million other exchanges in our lives. When that stone rolled away from that tomb in front of Jesus, hope rolled in and we never looked the same. It revolutionizes everything. And that's why our text in 5.1 begins with the therefore. And that therefore captures the fruit of the exchange we just meditated on in 425. And the, the exchange that we're going to meditate on that is triggered by the exchange that God accomplished in the cross and resurrection is this. We move from fragility to resiliency of hope. We move from Suffering in one way to suffering in a wholly, totally different way because of the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Christ, forges a durable hope in the midst of suffering. 
And Romans 5 really uses the language of boasting or rejoicing you might have in your Bible to express this resiliency that we're going to chew on together today. So before we read the whole passage, I just wanted to highlight it for you. In verse 2, he will write there at the end that we boast in hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. And then at the end of this passage, verse 11, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, boasting is the posture of the resilient. The gospel forges such a bold hope that we embrace our suffering and endure through our suffering, suffering with resiliency. Think about what has what is exchanged here. We don't emerge from our suffering as Christians embittered. We emerge somehow in a miracle emboldened. That's what I hope happens in your soul this morning. And we wanna be honest with you as a church, friends. The reality of living in a fallen world is that we're either exiting a season of suffering, we're either entering a season of suffering, or right now we're enduring a season of suffering. Welcome to church, right? This is, but this is reality of life in a fallen world. Many of you have embraced suffering to care for loved ones that you're weary right now in the suffering and sacrifices that that entails. And I hate to say it, but there are more letters in the Greek alphabet that might yet to be explored beyond Omicron, right? We live in a fallen world. And I don't know if you're like me, but I need arguments to stay resilient, to endure in hope. Because unbelief is like this very persuasive lawyer that gets in my head, who has all these compelling arguments of why we should live fragile lives and give in to fear and throw in the towel on hope. But Romans 5 makes the case closed and defends it well. Why? Hope is the logical conclusion for everyone who puts their trust in Christ this morning. So let's read Romans 5, 1 through 11 and look at the arguments we have for hope, resiliency of hope. 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, watch the logic from greater to lesser, how much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So we're gonna chew on this big idea this morning and look at it from different angles. And here it is on your outline. God embraced the hard cost of reconciliation so that all that is left is reunion with him. God embraced the hard cost of reconciliation so that all that is left is reunion with him. And God guarantees this reunion will satisfy all who are in Christ. So let's look at this passage and let's let resiliency of hope displace fragility and fear in our lives through the four arguments that it lays out for us. May we live in the exchange of fragility for resiliency. And the first reason why we can live that way is number one, the pain God embraced to bring us peace means the pain we endure is not punishment. The pain God embraced to bring us peace means the pain we endure is not punishment. You see, 425 triggers the whole flow of thought in 5, 1 through 11. This changes everything about how we approach our suffering. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus endured God's wrath so that we could enjoy God's welcome. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have been declared righteous because God has taken all the achievements, all the accomplishments, all the wealth of Christ and said they are ours by no merit of our own. He put them into our account when Jesus was raised from the grave. And in that righteous standing, friends, you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This means when you go through hardships, that they are not fueled from anger in God's heart or foreshadow more anger coming from God in the future. So friends, gauge the warmth of your relationship with God this morning. On what are you basing how good you guys are, right? How good you are with him. And what is the basis of your evaluation resting? And this text is clear. On the basis of Christ's finished work and his resurrected body, we have peace with God in him. But here on your outline, if you build your life on a sense, S-E-N-S-E, a sense, a feeling, fragility will be the result. You see, emotionalism really plagues us today. We we may be more in tune with our emotions than we ever have been before. And there may be some health to that, but we've also given them a lot of sway to dictate our lives and our mindset. So if you're riding the waves of how you feel to determine how you are with God and make it through a season of suffering, fragility will be the result. Why? Because feelings are fickle, right? Feelings make us 
fragile because they fizzle out. So how do you gauge the temperature of your relationship with God, whether you're hot, whether you're cold, whether you're lukewarm? Is the sense, S-E-N-S-E, of your perception of your status with God driving how you know you are with God? And feelings, really, if they dictate our, our, our relationship with God and our season of suffering, it'll be like picking flower petals. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And that's a world of uncertainty that you're thrust into and fragility will be the result. But if you build your life, secondly there, on the sense of Romans 5.1, S-I-N-C-E, S-I-N-C-E, resiliency will be the result. This is a different way to build your life. It's the sense of Romans 5.1, since you are justified by faith. Is that the center, the status, everything that determines how you are with God, your perception of how you are with God? It's either driven by the objective reality of what Christ has accomplished in the cross and through the resurrection, or it's built on some inner dimension or inner reality of what you feel in that moment. If it's built on feelings, it will be fragile. If it's built on the sense of Romans 5.1, it will be resilient. Peace is the status of your relationship with God and Christ. And that peace came with a cost. Look in verses nine and 10 with me and look at the cost. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? You see the logic, if God did the hardest thing to reconcile enemies to himself through the bloody work of Jesus' death on a cross in our place, then the lesser thing for him to do is bring us all the way to glory. That's why Paul can say we boast in hope of the glory of God because we have a future that we did not purchase for ourselves, but God did the hard part. He brought enemies to peace with himself through the penalty that Jesus bore on the cross. God did the hard part in your past so that your future is the easy part for him to bring you to glory. And peace is the corresponding experiential reality we have with God because he did this hard work of reconciling us to himself. Friends, you do not need to add the extra burden of the frown of God on your suffering, if you are a Christian this morning. A frown, you see, makes us fragile. The great hymn writer, William Cooper said, behind a frowning providence, so there could be frowning circumstances in your life right now, he wrote, God hides a smiling face. And that smile makes us sturdy in a season of suffering. Present peace, friends, is the fruit of Jesus' blood. Our suffering right now is no sign that he's out to get us. And friends, for some of you, I know that your suffering has been lingering for so long, you might even feel like he is out for blood. But listen, dear saint, he shed his blood to rescue you from that conclusion. There is no remnant of punishment left. 
he poured out every drop of his wrath on his son so that you could enjoy every moment of peace with him in the present. We stand in grace. We have obtained access by no merit of our own. Our pain is not the gauge of the warmth of our relationship with God, nor is our experiential reality of peace. Our emotions, this is built on the work of Christ, the objective work of Christ. So build your life, friends, on the sense of Romans 5.1. Because the pain that God embraced at the cross means only pleasure is coming your way in him. We boast in hope of the glory of God. A people who feel, feel no threat from heaven feel no ultimate threat on earth. And that gives our faith and hope its resiliency. Now the second argument that draws us out of fragility and presses us into resiliency is number two there on your outline. The spirit God gives means the path to future glory is laced with love and has no loopholes. The spirit God gives means the path to future glory is laced with love and has no loopholes. Look in verses three through five and notice the chain. Not only that do we boast in hope of the glory of God for our future, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Isn't this odd? We boast in our afflictions. That's not how we normally talk about our sufferings. Now, Paul is not putting a spin on our sufferings. He's not making light of how hard they are or flippantly telling us to just, just say it's easy. He's not saying we just blissfully turn a blind eye to it like yesterday when I, when I turned on the coffee pot and, and walked out of the room but failed to put the coffee pot underneath the, uh, the drip there and walked into hot coffee everywhere. He's not saying boast right then, Chip, right? He's saying it's difficult, it's an affliction, but he is a man that is firmly convinced, wholly persuaded that suffering cannot nullify the promise of hope we have. But why? Continue in verse three, because we know something. We boast in our afflictions because we know we know affliction serves to reinforce assurance. Friends, God uses affliction as a tool in the service of hope. Look at the assembly line. It goes all the way from affliction to endurance to proven character to hope, and that hope will deliver on its promise because God has given us a tether to his love to draw us into his heart it's the spirit of God that he's given to us. Each step into darker days is laced with love and no step is left out. There are no loopholes because this love gift of God, the Holy Spirit, tethers our tomorrow to our future glory. You see, the spirit puts hardship on the assembly line that it reinforces hope. And that hope won't betray us in the end. So think about it. Not only are your past sins delivered by what God did at the cross, 
Not only is your future secured by what he did in the resurrection, but the spirit secures that your dark days and the day-by-day grind of earthly suffering maintains that the journey will end in joy. Suffering, you see, my friends, reinforces hope by rescuing us from the illusion we are enough and driving home the conclusion he is enough. Suffering reinforces hope by rescuing us from the illusion we are enough and driving home the conclusion he is. Suffering, for those of us who are in Christ, forges assurance. And there are no loopholes there are no cracks in the, in the argument that the Spirit makes on our behalf because Jesus is in the courtroom of heaven. So Satan can make his case. Suffering can make its case in your mind. But love drives your story from beginning to end. The Holy Spirit says so. And hope will not disappoint. I've been reading The Hiding Place recently, a book by Corey Ten Boom, which he recounts her experiences in a a Nazi prison camp when she and her sister Betsy were arrested back during the dark days of World War II. They finally get through the arduous process of entering this labor camp in Germany. And they're admitted and they find their way to their rooms and they see these new beds, which are just wooden slats with straw on them, that smell of mold, because they've been there so long. And they find one and they scurry up onto one and they lay down to rest and all of a sudden the fleas just start biting them over and over. And this is what Corey yells to her sister. Put it on the screen for you. Here and here, another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly It took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. See, that's it. Suffering so drives us to God that the line between prayer and the rest of life begins to blur and vanish. The more we depend on God, the more he proves his dependability. And that's what we need. We need to be rescued from the lie that we have enough and we can manage and control our own future. And God's grace uses suffering to rescue us from this illusion. He ordains that things stretch us beyond our strength so that he might prove how durable his hope is and how you will not be disappointed in the end. I can remember back in 2016 when we lived in Turkey, we, we woke up to all of these friends from our Turkish church texting us because there was a coup happening in Turkey. The military had decided at that moment that they were going to take over the country. And so we were watching the news, trying to figure out what was going on. Didn't know that grammar in Turkish, that language. So all those vocabulary words were just flying by our heads, but we were barely hanging on. We didn't know what we would wake up to. And I remember I was... We, we were watching, we got kids sleeping in the other room, and I remember all the exit routes to get out of the country started closing down that night. I'm thinking, hmm, what's this gonna mean for us? 
So even in the region at the time, I was responsible for some other American families. And so they would submit to me their three planned exit routes because you had to have three because one and two might not work out. And I remember this single lady in a city that was living all by herself at the time. She sent her first one, which was pretty rational, second one, which was pretty reasonable. And her third one, somewhat jokingly said this, drive eight hours to another city in our country, which was impossible at the time, rent a hot air balloon and hope it lands in Syria. And at the time, Syria was dealing with their own mess with ISIS. And so we laughed out loud, just like you did. It was a ridiculous plan. But part of it just was reality. It resonated with, we were beyond our, we were in over our head at that moment, right? That was the reality of where we found ourselves. We had come to the end of our rope. Our passport didn't matter. Our money didn't matter. Nope, there was no escape route out of the country. And only God was with us there. And friends, maybe our backup escape routes around suffering are just as ridiculous to God as her plan was to get to Syria. Because he gets it so clearly. He sees it so clearly. Maybe, maybe our accumulation of wealth and money is just as foolish as a hot air balloon to Syria. Maybe our preoccupation with health and fitness is just another way we've charted a course to control our future. Our bodies will decay. Only his promise, friends, is worth building your life upon. And suffering is God's gracious way of popping all the balloons we've created of our backup plans so we would learn that he is enough. We're going to have to learn that lesson on the last day and he started the classes to get us ready now through the suffering we're enduring. And that's a gift. That's a gift. And that hope will not disappoint us on that last day and it will not betray us in the day today. Now I encourage you not to evaluate your proven character in the daily grind of suffering, but look at the long arc of what God is producing in your life and you will see love upon love. The third reason why we can press into resilient hope is found in verses six through eight, and it's the illogical love of God at the cross means hope has now become logical. The illogical love of God at the cross means hope has now become logical. Verses six through eight begins with a four, and I love that it begins with the four. Because the love gift that we've received from God, namely the Holy Spirit in verse five, drives us further and deeper into the love gift that God gave at the cross, namely that Christ died for us. Hardships prove our hope because the proof of God's love is unchanging and it's in the cross. And the Spirit pulls us step by step difficulty by difficulty into the yet-to-be-explored wonders of the love of God displayed at the cross. Look in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he compares it to human love. This is not the way our love works. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, Perhaps someone might even dare to die. 
But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul compares human love to God's love. And he says, sometimes sacrifice enters the fray of human relationships at a human level, but it operates on a principle of love the lovable. Sacrifice for the worthy. A good man in our human minds might perhaps even dare to die for someone. But this God stretches our categories beyond comparison. Right at our helpless moment, look at what the text says. In the midst of our hostility, verse 9 calls us enemies of God. In the most embittered, resentment, rebellious moment our heart could imagine, at our worst, we could have cared less about God. And what did he do? My son is going to die in your place. Christ died not for his friends, but for his foes. And that changes everything about your suffering because we never merited his love. So no matter how ugly it gets, it can't get much uglier than this. This is you in your truest, vilest, most vulnerable moment. And what did God do? He didn't say cancel, he said cross. We never merited his love. That means you can't disqualify yourself from his love. It is his own love to give on his own terms, in his own way. And he chose to prove to your soul that all of his intentions for you are love. By having the most extravagant, most miraculous most far-reaching breath of a demonstration of love the human race has ever known, he sent his son to the cross to argue your soul out of fragility and into resiliency. This is the glory of the cross. We didn't attract God's love. We didn't merit God's love. This means our hope, friends, is tethered and anchored to God's inclination to love us, not our condition to merit love. Nothing in us persuaded him, attracted him to love us. So let the cross of Christ silence your doubts about God's intentions toward you. The cross means he forever loves you. Don't look at your circumstances to gauge the temperature of your relationship with God. Look at the cross. This is what Tim Keller wrote. The cross doesn't tell us what our suffering means. The cross doesn't tell you everything of why you're going through what you're going through. But it does tell us what it can't mean. It can't mean that God doesn't love us. And I wanted to read another quote from The Hiding Place where I think the spirit intercepted a difficulty in Corey and Betsy's story in the midst of that German prison camp. And I just want to read a prolonged quote. And I didn't put it up on the screen so that you would imagine and put yourself in their shoes. And right in this moment is when Corey is watching the Bible just come to life in new and fresh ways in the midst of the darkest days you could ever imagine. So there they are, naked in line, 
for medical inspections. And this is what she writes. Sometimes I would slip the Bible from its little sack with hands that shook. So mysterious had it become to me. It was new. It had just been written. I marveled sometimes that the ink was dry. I had believed the Bible always. But reading it now had nothing to do with belief. It was simply a description of the way things were. Of hell and heaven. Of how men act and how God acts. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest. How soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. But now such happenings had faces and voices in the prison guards that were mocking them. Fridays were the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. The hospital hallway corridor, she writes, in which we waited was unheated and a fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our erect hands at side position as we filed slowly past a group of grinning guards. How these could have been, how there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick thin legs and hunger bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. Nor can I see the, the necessity for the complete undressing. When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down each throat, another, a dentist presumably, at our teeth, a third in between each finger. And that was all. We trooped again down the long, cold corridor and picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. But it was one of those mornings, Friday mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt to life for me. He, Jesus, hung naked on the cross. I had not known, I had not thought the paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least the scrap of cloth, but this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday, morning there had been no reverence no more than I saw in the faces around us now I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line and her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin Betsy they took his clothes too ahead of me I heard a little gasp oh Corey I never thanked him Never thanked. You see, my friends, that Friday of Corey and Betsy's story drove them into an unexplored dimension of the Friday of all Fridays. The love of God displayed through Jesus who hung naked on a cross. The Spirit tethered them into a further dimension of the love of God for sinners like you and me. Their bodies might have been fragile in that war camp, but friends, their souls were resilient. They were erupting in thanksgiving in one of the darkest trials you can imagine. The last argument 
that displaces fragility is number four. The resurrected Christ guarantees our future reunion with God will be wonderful. The resurrected Christ guarantees our future reunion with God will be wonderful. The logic from verses 9 through 11, how much more then since we have now been justified by his blood will we be saved through him from wrath? That's coming wrath. No place for the Christian. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having now been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only all that, can you go further than that? He reconciled us, he justified us, but there's more, dear Christian, there is more. Not only all that, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation Friends, Jesus is not in that tomb. He's in heaven reigning over all, and he's fine this morning. And his life right now means you're headed to life forever. The bigger thing for God to accomplish through the cross from our perspective was to reconcile enemies by death. And the easier thing is to have friends reunite in the life of his son. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, wrath is not in your future. Only warmth is in your future. Condemnation has no place in the courtroom of heaven because he lives. You know what has place in the courtroom of heaven? Communion. The most satisfying communion you can ever imagine. Not only does he do the unthinkable in loving at us in our most vile and vulnerable moment, he brings us all the way in to the unimaginable reward. He is the gift of the gospel. He not only saves us, but he challenges anything that says that they can be better than him in the end to a duo. And he wins every time. He says, I'll satisfy me. I will satisfy your soul forever and ever in eternity. Maggie Payton was the wife of John Payton. You may have heard of John Payton. He was a missionary to a small island in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean called Vanuatu today. And they suffered so much to bring the gospel to this cannibalistic tribe and this distant island. They lost children. At countless battles with malaria. And in her dying hour, she pulled her son close and told her these words. And death, imagine, death is literally squeezing the life out of this sister. And listen to how many times the word wonderful comes out of her mouth. Son, my whole heart is beating with love for you all. Talking about the children, every vein of it. What can weak words, paltry words express at such a time? I have made it right with my Savior. I love him and he has forgiven all my sins as a thick cloud. Isn't it wonderful that he does so? Wonderful. 
Life here is an apprenticeship for eternity, and we'll do better there. I'll see the king in his beauty. And the wonderful thing is that we will become like him. It takes wonderful love to do that. Friends, wonderful love is all that awaits us in Christ. We will see the king in his beauty. And that wonderful love forges resilient hope in the here and now of our darkest days. To fellow sufferers, wonderful love is what we have in the God and the gospel.